Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. I always say this every time I get Gerard Minak on. He's one of my favorite people to speak to. I've known him for a very long time. I really respect his views. Sometimes we have the same views. Sometimes we have different views. He's got a very different view to me. And that to me is really important to dig into. Not my job to talk about my own views. In this format, it's my job to extract as much value out of Gerard as possible. And I'm sure he's going to be incredibly interested to speak to yet again. He's like a human encyclopedia of economics. Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Gerard Minak, how the devil are you? I'm very well, Raoul. It's another day in paradise. Here in Sydney, we have um, very good winters, even if the summer sucks a little bit. Um, how are you? How's, yeah, how's I can't complain. Hot, hot and humid and sweaty here in the Cayman Islands and quite a few mosquitoes, but other than that, um, right. all good. So listen, before we get going, because as ever, I just love to pick your brains about what you think is going on, but just give people a background about yourself quickly, what you do, just so you can give yourself yep. a plug. Somebody's got, yeah. a, somebody's got to plug you, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, look, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. Um, you know, I'm a big picture guy, economist by training. Um, I recently celebrated 10 years of starting up Minak Advisors. So I've been independent for 10 years. Before that, I was doing various jobs at Morgan Stanley. The last one where I was their global price asset strategist. So jack of all, master of none. Um, <laughs> I've been in that fine tradition since I've gone independent. So I just, I guess we start with the big pictures. What the hell's going on? How are you thinking this all through? Well, look, I'm in a real predicament at the moment. Um, I mean, on a really big picture point of view, you know, 30,000 feet. uh, I I was a card-carrying secular stagnationist for two decades. I I thought the world was going to turn Japanese. Um, I resigned from the club in the pandemic. Uh, I think we're seeing... I remember you came on, you talked to on Real Vision. That's right. Now, that that means uh, on a structural view... I think that the next cycle is going to be very different to anything we've seen in the last three decades. But on a cyclical view, um, if we've got a downturn coming, that's quite a different beast. And that means you can ask me about almost anything. And I'm going to give completely contradictory answers, whether you're asking about it on a three-year time horizon or a three-quarter time horizon. Let's, let's, so, go, let's go with the secular view first, because that yep. frames everything. And then we can talk about where we are in the cycle, which, as you said, will go against or for your secular view, depending where we are. Yeah, exactly. So, well, look, the, the, the reason for the structural change, there's really two elements to it, but you've got to understand what the root cause of secular stagnation is in the first place. Our secular stagnation is an economic problem where planned saving exceeds planned capex. So you've got this idea of excess saving in the system. Of course, in a closed economy, and the world is a closed economy, actual saving and actual investment have to be equal. So the question is, what adjusts to bring these two things together? Well, for four decades, it's been this secular decline in interest rates. Uh, There's always been a cycle in rates, but if you look at the US 10-year Treasury, up until very recently, it's been four decades of lower lows, lower highs. Um, So that's the root cause of secular stagnation, excess saving. If you actually look at the data 
the big change hasn't been that the Western world's been saving a lot more over the last 30 or 40 years. It's been that the Western world's been investing a lot less. And that gets to what's going to change. And I think there's two big changes. Firstly, policymakers have rediscovered the joys of fiscal. Uh, because what they've done over the last 30 odd years is they've delegated managing the site to the central banks and they really muted fiscal tools in a way uh, of managing the cycle. Well, in the pandemic, um, they worked out that if you send checks to people, it tends to work and it tends to be popular. And I don't think they're going to unlearn that lesson. And I think in any subsequent downturn, uh, we will see a much faster resort to fiscal policy than what we've seen in the last three decades. That will make for much more V-shaped recoveries. Uh, and that's a big change from what we've been used to over the last three decades, which have tended to be very saucer-shaped recoveries because monetary policy uh, became in increasingly ineffectual as a macro stimulant. The second big change gets back to the outlook for CapEx. Now, there's lots of reasons why CapEx fell as a share of GDP in the developed world. And I'm going to point to several reasons why I think it's going to pick up over the next, uh, well, 10, 20 years. Uh, the first is we... we we made economies that were very, very efficient, um, but increasingly fragile. And the GFC highlighted the fragilities of the banking sector. The pandemic really highlighted the fragilities of the non-bank, non-financial sectors. And Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi are highlighting some geopolitical fragilities. So we're going to sacrifice uh, efficiency for resilience. And this is going to involve things like, and we all know the jargon now, onshoring, friendshoring, supply chain diversification, moving from just-in-time to just-in-case inventories. Now, you know, a classic example is TSMC building a fab plant in America. If it had been optimal for TSMC to build that plant, it would have built it years ago. Uh, it's not optimal, it's suboptimal, but it will create resilience um, in the face of obvious geopolitical risks. So this is going to involve yep, genuine capex and a reduction in efficiency, although it increases resilience. The second point uh, behind higher capex is even more obvious, and that's higher defence spending. Uh, the good old peace dividend is now come a rights issue, and we're seeing defence budgets rise uh, almost everywhere, and modern defence forces are very capex intensive. Um, a lot more bullets than men and uh, there might be some IP in a bullet but there's a lot more uh, tangible stuff the third factor climate mitigation this is potentially huge this is sort of multi-trillion capex spend around the world and that's going to be a long-lasting source of capex demand the fourth um, is higher public infrastructure spending because one of the things that we did in the west two or three decades ago um, is we really reduced our spending on public infrastructure. That's why the bridges fall down in America, the roads are potholed, but it's now one of the few areas of bipartisan agreement to, to turn that around, and we've had some uh, legislation passed to that effect. It's not just a US story. Uh, you've got the next-gen EU program in Europe, 800 billion euro program that's got a heavy focus on public infrastructure. The fifth and final factor pointing to higher capex is the prospect of higher corporate investment. Um, corporate investment fell as a share of GDP in most all developed economies. There were plenty of reasons for that, one of which was globalisation. We subcontracted our capex to the emerging world, and that's part of what's coming back. But it's also partly a story that labour was increasingly cheap and plentiful. And um, if you look at the, the payoff for a corporate of undertaking labour replacing capex, well, that's the saving they make in wages they don't pay. And if wage growth is low, that really blunts the incentive to undertake that labour replacing capex. So if we have tighter labour markets going forward, that's going to sharpen the incentives for labour replacing capex. And of course, labour replacing capex is identical to labour productivity boosting capex. So that's quite bullish. So put all that together and my view is to to put it in simple econo speak um 
the neutral rate of interest after four decades of decline is going to start to rise. And we've already got the first symbolic sign of that when the 10-year Treasury yield in the US bust above 3.5% a year ago. That was the first time since 1980 a cycle peak in the 10-year surpassed the prior cycle peak. So unless you were trading rates in the 70s, I don't think even you were, Raul. Um, <laughs> I think you've seen. So, you know, I've already got a symbolic turning point, the first higher high after four decades of lower highs. And even if we were to have a recession in the US, I'd be staggered if the 10-year yield went back to the 50 basis point low that we saw um, in 2022, uh, 2020, sorry. Uh, so after a higher high, we'll see a higher low, and then we'll be off on a new higher high. So that's the picture on a secular basis, and um, it's got huge ramifications for rates. It also would impact things like um, equity bond correlation, because in the secular stagnation era, we saw persistent inverse equity bond correlation. I think that's not likely going forward. And the, the prospect of rising rates will also affect the attractiveness of being levered because for four decades, being levered long was normally pr pretty pleasant. Um, it's not going to be as pleasant going forward. So a lot of the trends that have dominated investment markets for the last 30 or 40 years, I think you're going to start to reverse. So let's. I just want to pick apart some of these just to get your thinking on some of the areas that that it might not play out because we always, you know, we have to be riddled with insecurities in our industry because we get that wrong. One thing is, how certain are you that the spike that we saw in rates and inflation was not just a supply-driven pandemic shock, much like 1946 was, and that it's more structural? Because 1946 is very different to 1970, right? We, we had a huge spike because everyone came into the labor force, there was no supply of goods. It then collapsed back down to negative, went back up in the rebounds, the year-on-year -year rate of change, and then kind of settled down eventually. How do we know it's not that versus the 70s structural style? Uh, I think it is. Uh, in the pandemic episode, uh, a hell of a lot to do with supply-side disruptions. And so what I immediately need to make clear is in my worldview of where we're heading, we are not going to get uh, sharply higher uh, inflation. Uh, I'd, I'd be surprised if we saw trend inflation with a three-handle in the US. What will be required, however, is higher rates to achieve inflation around targets. So higher real <laughs> rates is what you're talking about. Correct. Correct. And so just, just think of it this way. Broadly speaking, the Fed was able to keep inflation around its 2% target roughly, around its 2% target for the last three decades. But to achieve that, it had to keep on cutting rates so that through that period, the cycle average rates stepped down through three decades. Now, what I'd be expecting going forward is to keep inflation around target, and it may be a little bit over, but as I said, I'd be surprised if we saw a sustained three-handle. Um, the Fed's going to have to keep interest rates on a cycle average basis higher. So that's the essence of my story. In terms of what occurred in the pandemic, absolutely agree with you. There were supply-side shocks that were, yeah, the Fed's too sheepish to use the word, but I'm going to use it, that proved to be transient. Um, uh, now, they, they were a little bit more persistent than the Fed was obviously expecting and other central banks, though they can't quite claim victory. But ultimately, a lot of the pandemic shocks have been slowly unwound and we've seen what so far looks like an immaculate disinflation with inflation pressures moderating without a required increase in unemployment. And we'll come back to that when we start to talk about the cycle. But I just want to make clear in terms of my structural change story, it's much more significant for what it means about interest rates than what it means for um, average inflation. Yeah, but rate no inflation is not something I've heard from anybody else. Most people think there's a structural inflation story, you say it's actually very different. It's a structural rate story. It's a structural rate story because to keep inflation around target will require higher rates going forward than it has in the past. Now, I immediately need to say one thing. That's true in the US. Um, if you look at 
how the Fed uh, achieved its inflation objective, it actually did undershoot a little in the decade after the GFC. So if, if the Fed hits its inflation target precisely going forward, you will see slightly higher inflation than what we saw post-GFC because they were undershooting. But if you look at other central banks like the ECB or the BOJ, if in this new world um, they start hitting their inflation targets, I mean, that's a big step up from what we've become accustomed to. I mean, most obviously in Japan, where you've roughly speaking had no inflation for, for 20 years. So if they start achieving 2%, well, then you're talking about JGB yields needing to rise, not just because the real component's going up, but also to reflect the fact that, hey, guess what? The BOJ is hitting its inflation target. We never expected that. So there's potentially a bigger adjustment in non-US uh, long-end rates. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. How do governments pay the interest on the debt? Because GDP growth, trend rate of GDP growth is not going up because well, of demographics and other issues. So how, yeah. do you, how do you actually generate enough GDP to pay off the debt of all of these economies that are two, three, four hundred percent of GDP in debt? You, well, firstly, nominal GDP, which is what matters for debt service, will, will certainly be higher in a place like Japan. Um, it's interesting, particularly if you're focusing on GDP, which I agree is pertinent in this comparison. Over the last two decades, uh, CPI in Japan has broadly been flat, but the GDP deflator has been falling. So they have actually experienced outright deflation if you look at economy-wide prices, not just consumer prices. So if we were to um, see the GDP deflator start to rise on a gentle basis, you certainly are talking about stronger trend nominal GDP growth. And what matters for debt servicing is obviously interest rate relative to nominal growth. That that may not be any worse. There will be structural pressures on, on government budgets everywhere. So I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish on this. Um, we can see where those pressures are coming from. Um, Aging, healthcare, defence, and debt service. These are all things that potentially will grow faster than than GDP. And therefore, if you look at you know forecasts such as the Congressional Budget Office's forecast for public sector debt to GDP in the US, which is now roughly about 100% of GDP, uh, they've got it going up roughly to 190% of GDP by 2050. Now, that is a forecast that I guarantee will be rolled. Therefore, the question is, what's going to make it roll? And my answer is, well, if this is all untenable uh, in terms of the pressures on public sector uh, demand for their resources, I think governments will resort to two things. Firstly, um, there will be higher taxes. I think that's, that's as obvious as the nose on my face. Secondly, they'll also uh, push onto the private sector some of the expenses uh, they potentially face. So a classic example here is, is climate change. Can the governments afford to fund all the spending necessary to get to net zero by 2050? Hell no. So they're going to turn around and say, right, boy, you're going to have to do it and effectively push the expense back onto the private sector. So... Um, I do agree that there's going to be a squeeze on, on, on public finance. But I come back to what we're talking about, which is the structural change story. If the problem behind secular stagnation has been the private sector uh, saving too much, then the fact that we're talking about the public sector, in a sense, borrowing too much is a terrific antidote. It absolutely underscores the point that the curtain's coming down on secular um, stagnation. And that from a market perspective, is the first thing we need to hold on to as a framework. How the governments cope, I mean, it's a second-order issue. It will have some really important ramifications for some sectors. But let me give you one equity market consequence of this. If you look at the US non-financial sector, um, over the last two decades, its EBITDA margins, while volatile, have been in a flat range. If you look at post-tax margins, 
while volatile have been at a rising range. So what do we square the circle? How, how, do we, how do we reconcile those two points? Well, almost all the increase in post-tax margins in US non-financial corporates over the last two decades has been due to two things. Firstly, declining net interest expense. And secondly, declining average effective tax rates. So lower taxes, lower, lower interest rate expenses. Which way do you think those two things are heading over the next two decades? Yeah, not down is my answer. So another thing to, before we move on from the secular stuff into the cyclical stuff, how are you thinking, you know, so I'm looking at the trends of the CapEx and all of that. You know, we see it in the numbers, obviously. Um, you know, we see it in the Mexico boom. You know, it's all very evident. But what's interesting is you see a new factory go up and it's full of robots. It's like they're, they're not very intensive of people, wages, and traditional things that tend to increase costs over time. And they tend to be more productive and efficient because they've replaced Chinese workers with robots, essentially. That's what's happened. That's the trade-off they had to make. So how do you think that all fits in, that big kind of mega technology trend as well? Well, to be clear, when I was a card-carrying secular stagnationist, um, I pointed to several trends that explain why we were seeing these persistently low rates. And I'll just rattle off the list very quickly. Debt, demographics, inequality, globalization, digitization, new technology, and oligopolization, growing corporate power. Now, those six, probably only one, globalization, um, is reversing. All the other factors remain intact. So the reason I'm no longer in the club is that this pressure on fiscal and the uh, d desire for higher capex, I think, will overwhelm these other factors. But it, it's a balance. It's a balance. And certainly, if, if I've put too much weight on the capex story, um, which I don't think I have at this stage, but if I do get that wrong, then we're back. We're back in the soggy, you know, Japan-like trajectory that became increasingly dominant post-GFC. But to go back to the later question, um, I'd make a couple of points there. Uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, globalisation was so disinflationary for the West uh, was not so much that we were importing cheap Chinese goods. That was a factor. But I'm increasing the view that the major factor was that um, that hollowed out uh, unionised sectors of the market. And what we typically saw was uh, higher migration flows to developed economies. Now, I don't think we will see the same sustained high migration flows and we can't, you know, having lost the unionised sectors, we're not going to lose them again. We, we conducted a little experiment in the pandemic, shut your borders and what does it do to labour markets? It gets them steaming hot. Um, and even before the pandemic, there had been a few partial little experiments conducted about what happens when you dis disrupt migration flows. The first example was America elected in 2016, um, a fairly migrant, unfriendly president who reduced the inflow of unskilled migrants, particularly from um, the South. What did we see from 2017 onwards? The fastest wage growth in America was for unskilled workers. Who, who would have thought? Uh, reduce the supply of unskilled workers and unskilled workers that are left get paid more. Once again, that's another lesson I don't think we're going to unsee. A second example also occurred in 2016 when uh, the UK voted for Brexit. Guess what? No more Polish plumbers, no more Balkan truck drivers, and their rates go up. Once again, I don't think we're going to unsee that. So uh, I think this is an important area where the, the crucial component of globalisation, which was hugely enhanced labour movement, I don't think we're going to go back to where we were in most, in most countries. I have to say, as an aside, one country that we are going back to that is Australia. But anyway, I think on the major markets, we won't go back. Um, so I take your point. A lot of the capex um, is going to lead to so is in areas that won't generate a lot of jobs. Yeah, the building of the capex will 
mean, you know, construction is a labour-intensive thing. But ultimately, if we don't or reduce the supply of unskilled workers, that's going to put pressure up. The other thing to remember, and this is crucial, when when uh, you know, central banks were forward-looking, forward-looking monetary policy effectively evolved into a wage suppression policy. There was a high correlation between policy rates and wage rates. The Fed typically started to tighten when wage growth picked up. Now, it looks like in hindsight, the Fed was far too worried about the strength in wages. Now, wages can reach a level that will put unacceptable pressure on, on inflation, without a doubt. But these central banks were jumping at shadows, which meant that we were effectively running labour markets too soft through most of the last two decades. And one of the revealing things of the cycle we're in now is perhaps we can accept higher or sorry lower unemployment than we thought was compatible with inflation targets. I mean, here we are with a three and a half percent unemployment rate in the States, and wage growth is slowing at the margin. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners, and then we'll be right back. Actually, I want to ask you about this because I'm trying to think this thing through. Japan managed to have this structural low unemployment because of the demographic, right? All the older people leave the workforce, so the people in the workforce are, you know, the labor force participation rate is lower, and therefore those people stayed in jobs, but it was never wage inflationary. How, how do we think through that? Because I'm trying to figure out, is there a signal or is that just noise or what do you think? Oh, I, I, I think ultimately... It's a case that you haven't run your economy hot enough. Um, you know, a lot of people look at Japan and say, look, look at the problems about you know, too much government stimulus. I, I look at Japan and go, look at the problems of inadequate government stimulus or at least inadequate mobilisation of the resources they had. I mean, the irony in Japan is, um, you know, the excess saving is now almost solely due to the, to the corporate sector. Um, Profits are near all-time highs a share of GDP, and listed sector corporate capex net of depreciation is zero. Um, and why aren't they investing? Well, because growth is too slow. Um, now, this is an interesting thing where I think Japan will be a beneficiary of some of these changes. Not everything's going to get onshored to America. There'll be friends shoring. Um, Japan itself is going to increase its defence spending. So I think in Japan's case, we will see higher capex for some of the factors I've been talking about. In terms of where they have been over the last two decades, I think it's partly, yes, aggregate demand was too low. It's also the peculiarities of their labour market with a, a very bifurcated structure. Um, you had a very rigid uh, seniority system within the large corporates, but then outside that, you had a very deregulated and frankly, low-paid a sort of, I won't say casual system, but you know, there was this huge gap between the salary man system and the big corporates and anybody outside that was really, it was a free labour market and it was a testament to um, the slack in the economy that you didn't see wage gains really ever built any head of steam there for two decades, um, which I think, as I said, is just aggregate demand is too, too weak. One of the one success stories I should also say of Arbonomics is their participation rate is now rising. It has been rising for almost a decade, uh, which is defying the demographic trends because the ongoing ageing in Japan says that its participation rate should be falling. Um, one of the successes of Arbonomics was to lift female participation. And so you have actually seen now a rising labour supply in Japan as what had been dreadfully low female participation uh, comes back to normal. Um, yeah, and then had no immigration either. They were essentially a closed labour economy. That's right. That's right. So even that's changing at the margin, not to be decisive. The really big change is that female labour participation, but they are even starting to consider in, in some of the low skill, typically coping with the ageing problem, whether to bring more people in. Classic story of get someone to do the, the dirty work no one wants to do. <laughs> okay, so we've set us up. It's super fascinating. Um Let's talk through where we are in the cycle now, because this is confusing the hell out of a lot of people. And I'll be honest, Raul, right now I'm saying you are right to be confused. Um, and you've caught me just as my views are also starting to shift a little. Um, if we had talked 
even a month ago, uh, I would have said with fairly high conviction the US is heading to a recession. I wasn't surprised that it's taken so long. I, I was not in the first half recession camp. I thought it would be a um, late 23 story. Um, but now I'm starting to wonder if they could pull off what I considered to be highly unlikely, which is a soft landing. And the, the single most important data point that has changed uh, my view is that wage growth is now decelerating without uh, a rise in unemployment. So once again, to think in terms of how an economist would see it, you know, the well-known Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and wages, which had sort of jumped out in the pandemic, is now coming back in. If you look at the employment cost index, which I think is the best measure of wages, and just look at the quarterly numbers on an annual basis, in the middle of last year, they were going up 5.5%. Now, the Fed had told us that it could tolerate up to 3.5%. So you were 2% above what the Fed could tolerate. And if you thought to get wage growth back down to that 3.5%, you needed an increase in unemployment, then my, I was arguing you virtually need to make a recession your base case. Um, you probably know the factoid. There's never been an increase in US unemployment more than half a percent without a recession. So it's just really difficult. I mean, history shows it's really difficult to manage forward-looking monetary policy by watching backward-looking labour market indicators. It's a classic story of driving the car by looking in the rearview mirror. It virtually always ends up off the road in a ditch. Um, well, guess what's happened since? Um, we've had sequentially slower wage growth and the June quarter 23 data point, which we just got, showed that on an annualised basis, wage growth is now running under 4%. So we were at five and a half. We were aiming to get to three and a half. We've made three quarters of that journey without any rise in unemployment. And that really uh, comes back to something you just had mentioned. The, the odd supply side shocks that really were almost unique to this pandemic. And it wasn't just in the good sector. And this is the lesson I think um, we need to appreciate. The, the disruptions in the goods sector were obvious um, from running out of semiconductors to running out of dunny paper. But the labour market disruptions were arguably as important. And it's fairly easy to uh, point out why we had such labour market disruptions. When we got locked up and they sent us checks, we went online and bought stuff. Now, what did that mean in the labour market sense? We didn't need people to service meals at restaurants. We didn't need people to clean hotel rooms. We didn't need people to fly us around. What we needed was people to make the toilet paper and deliver it to us. So all of a sudden, there was this huge switch in the demand for labour. Then we have reopening. And all of a sudden, we don't need so many delivery men. We need people to go back to being baggage handlers at airports, check-in clerks at hotels. So, look, almost overnight, you saw this massive toing and froing in labour demand, not just quantity, but the areas where we needed the workers to be. And that created um, a dislocation, particularly in the US labour market. And what we saw was an unusually high number of vacancies for the given unemployment rate. So that tells you there's something wrong with the labour market, that you simultaneously had unemployed with a high vacancy rate. Now, I always used to say, how long will this take to un, you know, kill itself? I'd love to have data on how the last 10 pandemics have affected labour market behaviour. I, I didn't have the data, and my presumption was always that this would take so long that it wouldn't be a factor in how the Fed operates money policy. I think I'm wrong. I, you know, what we're now seeing um, is we're seeing vacancy rates fall uh, with unemployment low. So we're starting to get a better labour supply demand balance. In other words, the, people, the workers are going to where they need it. And that's being associated with this decline in wage growth with the unemployment rate fairly steady. So the healing is happening fast enough that it gives the Fed a much better chance of pulling off a soft landing. Now, 
I, I don't want to say immediately that let's all just assume a soft landing. There are still reasons to think that a hard landing is a serious risk. And I'll be honest, I'll, I'll give you my odds of a recession. I think it's a coin toss. And if you say, Jared, that sounds like you don't know, then that's not a bad surmise. I mean, um, here we are. I can see it heading both ways um, because I can still see the reasons that I was expecting a recession, which is that much of the policy restraint hasn't yet made its way through to the real economy, remain intact. But I now think the Fed's got more flexibility to respond than I thought it would have had if we had been talking even a month ago. Because I think the Fed can quite rightly say now that it can pause and pause indefinitely. Um, and even if growth starts to slow below trend, it opens up the prospect of it easing um, next year. I think for sure growth will slow, um, but there is a much better chance now of us avoiding a hard landing than, as I said, I thought even a month ago. So a couple of things on that. Firstly, all of the forward-looking indicators we all use, right, all signified a recession. I mean, pretty much every single thing we've had in our box of tricks for the last 30 years said recession. And it's been weird that GDP's not got there. We've seen this sort of thing a couple of times before where it's maybe it's got delayed by some reason. So that, that was one thing to me that was like, okay, this is weird. Why? I don't really understand the why bit yet. On the other side, and after the greatest rates rise in history, rate of change, it's like, that doesn't make sense. And the other thing is, I guess what you're suggesting is maybe the wage stuff is just a bit delayed, you know, because there is a lag to this stuff and maybe we're just getting itchy in the middle of it saying, well, why hasn't it happened and it's still yet to come up? Our work suggests that GMI, that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the fourth quarter in terms of um, unemployment going up. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take your first point. Um, this is where uh, a lot of the long-standing leading indicators gave, frankly, a bum signal. And I think I know why. And it goes back to this amazing toing and froing between goods and services. I mean, the good sectors, let's be frank, had a terrific pandemic. Um, demand just went through the roof because we got locked up and we could only buy goods. Um, and that included uh, the resi sector, residential construction, having a terrific pandemic also. Since uh, really 18 months, two years ago, consumers have been redirecting their spending away from goods and towards services. Now, that means if you look at real consumer spending on goods, um, it's, it's had zero growth for almost two years now. Now, historically, most of the leading indicators we look at have got a heavy skew to the goods sectors. It's your PMIs, it's your new orders, it's your housing starts. Because normally, in most cycles, goods sectors are the canaries down the coal mine. You know, their weakness signals a broader macro downturn. That simply wasn't the case this cycle. The weakness in the goods sectors this cycle was payback for the extraordinary strength that enjoyed through the pandemic. Meanwhile, the service sector um, was seeing a revival and was growing at an above-trend pace. Now, just think two of the consequences of that. The first is almost every goods-based leading indicator, as you said, flagged recession. The one I pick on, for no real reason, um, is the conference board leading indicator. Um, it hasn't given a bad signal in six decades. They do statistically retrofit it, so it's a bit like it's good at forecasting the past. But anyway, that's my forte as well. Um, no bad signals in six decades. It was signalling a recession the first half of the year. Wrong. And why? Well, the leading index is actually designed to pick up swings in the industrial production cycle, not as a broad economic indicator, but that's how it's become used. And it's got a heavy skew to the goods sector. So that's the first consequence of this flat lining in goods while services were very strong. But the second consequence is probably even more important. Um, if you spend uh, a dollar less on goods and a dollar more on services, that's GDP neutral. But it's absolutely not labour market neutral because service sectors are much more labour intensive. So what we saw through the last 18 months is GDP growth has slowed in, in most economies. 
but the labor markets stayed tight as a drum. And you can see that everywhere in the developed world, but yeah, the best example at the moment, I think, is Europe. I mean, if you believe the data, Europe has seen uh, two consecutive GDP declines, very small ones, but nonetheless, back-to-back yeah, -back negative numbers. Anybody who's going to Europe at the moment would know Europe is so far from recession, it's a joke. I mean, the place is absolutely pumping and the labour market's strong and unemployment's at multi-decade lows. Why? Well, they're not buying as many BMWs as they used to, but everybody I know has gone to Italy for a holiday. Um, so you've had this real disconnect between uh, labour market strength and what has been a deceleration in most GDP indicators. I mean, I've... I've seen this. We've seen it here in the Cayman Islands as well, right? It's like the busiest tourist season in history when consumer discretionary spending got slaughtered. And I, I think this is part of this pandemic thing is like we all work from home more now, right? We don't go to the office. We don't socialize. We don't travel as much. We don't do the business trips that you and I used to see each other somewhere in the world. We don't do as much of that. But what we do do is spend discretionary spend on those times that we do get together, like holidays yep. or restaurant meals. Now, the question is, is whether that sustains, uh, it's a structural change in how we operate now, or it's just still another pandemic wash through? Uh, well, I'd argue it's a pandemic wash through. And this comes back to why, even though I sort of gave the bullish spin before that we're seeing wage growth um, go back to an acceptable level without an increase in unemployment. I mean, policy is restrictive. And there's been a number of factors that have delayed the impact of policy on the real economy. And let me run you through some of the delay factors. Um, the first is exactly this point. Um, labor markets have been unusually strong in the face of weak GDP because of the mixed shift in consumer spending. But that's a delay factor. I mean, labor markets are actually slowing. Employment growth is decelerating. And once you know, consumer spending gets back to the usual pre-pandemic trends, um, you know, this should be a wash through the system. I don't think we're in a world of structurally higher service sector spending relative to goods. This is just a payback for the fact that service sector spending collapsed in the pandemic, while goods sector spending went a mile above trend. So it, it's a transient uh, wedge between the two. The second delay factor is even more obvious and discussed. It's the fact that when we did get locked up, most governments sent us checks that we weren't able to spend all of. So we came into this with, almost in every developed economy, um, a pile of excess saving. Now, on my numbers, um, that pile of excess saving has been run down by over $1.5 trillion since the start of 2022. So in other words, consumer spending has been $1.5 trillion stronger than it would otherwise have been courtesy of this piggy bank. The third factor uh, that I think has delayed the impact of restrictive policy on the real economy was the unusual behaviour of long-end rates uh, in this cycle. Now, this is crucial, particularly to the US, because the US is a long-rate economy. I mean, who borrows at the Fed fund rate? Commercial banks in the overnight market. Most private sector borrowers are further out the curve. So long rates is what matters to most people. Now, if you look at most cycles, the 10-year yield goes up right through a Fed tightening cycle until very late in the Fed tightening cycle. And the ultimate peak in the 10-year yield is normally at or above the ultimate peak in the Fed fund target. Well, not this cycle. Um, the 10-year yield peaked uh, seven months ago. It peaked around the point that the Fed lifted the ceiling on the Fed fund rate to 4%. We're now at 55 there's been 150 basis points of Fed tightening with no significant flow through, not just to Treasury yields, but even to private sector yields. The 30-year the benchmark mortgage rate is now roughly where it was when the Fed hiked to 4%. Now, I'm not saying that monetary policy is easy. I think it's restrictive. But what I am saying is the last 150 basis points of Fed tightening did not make the stance of policy significantly more restrictive. So that's a delay factor. The irony here is, as the market uh, starts to think about the possibility of a soft landing, it's going to have to 
readjust where it thinks the neutral rate of interest is. And that means you're going to see upward pressure on long-end rates. Moreover, if there's a soft landing, we're seeing falling uh, inflation expectations. So what we're now going to see, potentially, is a new leg of policy restrictiveness as long-end rates drift up, inflation expectations drift down, so real rates are going to continue to rise, and that will, as it normally does, have an impact on the real economy. The fourth and final uh, sort of delay factor is that we've seen the return of fiscal policy stimulus um, on a crude, crude estimate, and this is the headline number, I need to qualify it. But if you just look at the four-quarter change in the federal budget balance, and when it widens, when it becomes a larger deficit, that's stimulus. Well, here's a factoid for you. Right now, we've seen the greatest easing in fiscal policy in 2023 since the end of World War II, aside from the pandemic and the GFC. I mean, it's amazing how the budget balance has blown out this year. Now, that's the headline number. It's a crude estimate. Some of the reasons for that deterioration, I wouldn't hand on hard really count as genuine fiscal stimulus. To give you one example, we all know asset markets were terrific uh, in 2021 and 2022. Um, 2020 and 2021. So in 2022, there was an enormous amount of capital gains tax paid. We all know that markets absolutely sucked in 2022, so there's no capital gains tax being paid. So part of the reason for the blowout and the deficit is the collapse in capital gains tax payments, something I wouldn't really count um, as a stimulus. But you can't deny the on-the-ground impact of things such as the Inflation Reduction Act, and you can see it in the, in the CapEx numbers. So... There has been this very unusual, very late cycle, uh, second wave of fiscal stimulus that has also, in a sense, delayed the impact of monetary policy. But many of these things are transient. And what I particularly highlight is, you know, real rates, I think, will be heading up. Um, the labour market will start to slow as the surge in service sector spending fades. And most importantly, um, that piggy bank of stimmy checks um, is being run down. I don't think it's going to provide much support to growth as we head into next year. So I still think there's a real chance of a recession. It's a lower chance than I was arguing a month or two ago, but I, I certainly don't think we can be complacent. And when I look at markets, you know what? I, I mean, you talk to a lot of people also, Raoul. M my sense is uh, not that people at the start of the year were believing in a hard landing, uh, and now we'll believe in a soft landing. My sense is, at the start of the year, people thought they knew what was going on. Now they think they've got NFI. And they've really lost their sure-footedness. And, I mean, it's a bit of a corny thing, but I really do think this is a two-way market. If the data uh, actually confirmed that we are heading to a soft landing, then I don't think that's in the price. I, I think we get more equity strength. I actually think the curve needs to swivel. There'll be further upward pressure on long-end rates. On the other hand, if there's a hard landing, that's a mile away from being priced. And we'd see a major adjustment if we do get uh, macro data that disappoint. But the timing there is crucial. And one thing I, I continually emphasise to people, you have to remember, equity investors are happy people. They are glass half full people. They aren't very far-sighted when it comes to bad news. And my factoid here is, if you ignore the two oil shock downturns, which I justify by saying, well, the reason equity sold off was just the lift in energy prices, um, the S&P uh, 500, on average, is within 2% of its cycle peak two months before the start of an NBR-defined recession. In other words... The recession has to be that close to uh, appearing for the equity market to price it in. So if you think, for example, the recession starts March quarter 2024, uh, it would be completely in line with history for the equity market to rally right through most of this year.
So why was so when I look at the forward-looking indicators, let's say the age-old, the trusty S&P year-on-year versus the ISM, right? It did exactly what it should do on the tin, and it kind of forward-priced it last year. So how can it how, how can it go down again for something it priced in the previous year? Uh, I th I think last year's sell-off um, was connected to two things and not as directly connected to the ISM as, as I, I know the correlation worked. I, I have that chart. Yeah, we all lived that, lived and breathed that. Correct. Um, I mean, firstly, we, we saw you know, a big inflation and rate shock and um, the telltale si signs that that was what was driving the market is if you looked at the relative sector performance through 2022, um, what was the big underperformers? was all your highly rated stuff. What did well was a hell of a lot of your cyclicals. Now, that's not a market that's pricing in a cyclical downturn. That's a market that's derating on the back of higher interest uh, and higher inflation. Specific to tech, what we also saw last year um, was a decline in long-run expected EPS growth. Now, this is crucial. Um, I mean, a lot of people believe that the key to equity bubbles is low rates. That's complete bonkers. Um, if low rates were the key to um, high valuations, then Japan would have the world's most expensive equity market. Boiler alert, it doesn't. Um, what is absolutely essential to any uh, equity bubble is bullish earnings expectations. So if you look at the, the biggest ever US equity bubble, which was in 2000, the TMT bubble, um, Long-run tech sector EPS forecasts were running at 18% compound. I mean, you know how compounding works. If earnings are really going to grow on a long-run basis at 18%, um, tech was going to eat the world. And that got us valuations that were absolutely nosebleed. Against a backdrop, people forget this, in 2000, uh, both the 10-year and the 30-year index-length bonds in the U.S., we're over 4%. I mean, it was the highest real rates in in years. And that coincided with the really expensive equity market. And then what happened? Earnings expectations fell, real yields fell, and the equity market derated. So um, what happened in 2022 is we saw, uh, once again, referencing the, the, the long-run earnings expectations for the tech sector, they actually fell to the lowest level ever. We have data on that since 1985. So it was a combination of a inflation shock and a derating driven by lower long-run earnings expectations, I think were the key to what happened in 2022. Um, now, let me tell you something about this year, but I immediately have to say, this is where I've been good at forecasting the past. Alas, I did not say this at the start of the year. So... Um, this is, uh, once again, Harry Hindsight is a gun performer. Um, and this I've got to give credit to to, to a mate um, who's a client, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And I caught up with him in London at the start of the, in the middle of the year. And we were talking about this sort of amazing re-rating through the first half of the year. And he just sort of looked at me and said, well, you know what? Um, we had six months where growth was better than expected, i.e. higher, and inflation was better than expected, i.e. lower. Um, now, growth slowed, but we didn't have a recession. Inflation was above target, but it's a price to the downside. And you know what? You look at history. If ever you get simultaneously growth surprising to the upside, inflation surprising to the downside, you tend to see equities re-rating because that's a true Goldilocks mix. So um, I think yeah, we got wrong-footed by... Uh, many people got wrong-footed by you know, assuming the recession was going to come too soon and probably not putting enough weight on the fact that inflation was declining. Um, yes, it was still above target, but it was declining in a pleasantly surprising way. Now, the forward-looking point is, will those things continue to generate those positive surprises? And that's where the whole hard landing, soft landing sort of issue um, comes in. Obviously, if it's a hard landing, then you won't sustain those surprises and you'll get a, a second leak to the equity market sell-off. And that second leak will not be driven by derating due to 
uh, inflation shock. Um, it'll be driven by cyclical concerns. And this gets back to one of the things I said you know, when we started to talk. Um, ask me about anything, and I'm going to have completely contradictory answers whether you're asking me about a three-year view or a three-quarter view. If there's a recession, you do not want to buy uh, you know, cyclical stocks like energy or materials or industrials because they're all highly cyclical. But if I'm right on my structural view, my one-line tag on how the world will look next cycle is blessed are the goods makers uh, because it's going to be a cycle that plays to their strengths. And that includes the companies that you know, provide the inputs to goods makers, your, your energy companies um, and your industrial commodity companies. So I'm, I'm quite bullish those companies on a three-year view, but I wouldn't be buying them today if you are still in the hard landing camp. And that's the conflict between the cyclical versus structural um, outlook for those companies. It's always amazing how we've got to be schizophrenics in this business, right? You, you have to be able to have two comp competing ideas in your head at the same time and be comfortable with the schizophrenia happening. Because the people who don't do that are the people who consistently screw up because they get married to it. It's just an assessing probabilities. And it's just always good you come on here and say, look, I don't know, but here's how I see it. And it's kind of adjusting as we go. Yes. And I mean, as I said, you've called me real, just, just midpoint adjustment. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll be as influenced by the data. I'm very conscious that part of the reason I've become um, less bearish is I've done what I always tell people not to do. I've probably put a lot of weight on one data point. Um, and you should never put too much weight on one monthly or quarterly data point. So we need to get this story of immaculate disinflation confirmed by further data points. Um, but I have to recognize that the new news was a lot better than I had been expecting. And that's, that's how I adjusted my views. So final question, we, we won't go through in detail because I can talk to you for hours because you know everything in such amazing detail. You're like a human computer for this stuff. Uh, you sent out a note this morning on China. What is your top-down picture on China? Because obviously people need to, people are looking at that thinking, have they screwed this all up? What's going to happen? What's your kind of quick, oh, look, uh, quick uh, overview of that? Let, let's first of all put geopolitics to one side. I, I have views on geopolitics, but everybody does. I think even without talking about geopolitics, China looks kind of screwed. Um, and um, the problem is the root cause of their problem is uh, the household sector saves too much. Now, let me explain why that's the root cause of the problem. Um, China looked terrific for three decades. And um, although China's rise was extraordinary, the template it was following, we've seen other emerging developing economies use the same plan template. And it's a fairly simple process. You suppress consumer spending. So the household sector has a whole lot of savings that they, you then use to generate a capex boom and you direct that capex typically to export orientated manufacturing and then you say to all your farmers stop working on the farm come work in a factory and if you look at the data in china uh, factory workers typically had a five times greater gdp per person output than farmers so this process of taking people from farms and sticking them in factories generated a, a huge surge um, in productivity and obviously aggregate GDP growth. Now, China was the largest uh, example of that, but at the end of the day, uh, template that Korea followed, um, that Taiwan followed, and Japan followed. Now, when you get to middle income, what you then have to do is dial it all around and say to consumers, okay, you start spending and we'll dial down the capex. Well, that's where the Chinese policymakers have run into problems. And that is why they've been forced to keep CapEx at extraordinarily high levels. Because, as you know, in a closed economy, and I know China is not uh, completely closed, but it's not exactly open, um, if you've got this torrent of household savings, Chinese policymakers have had this fire hose of CapEx that they've had to point around and really, the entire story of the last 15 decades has been 
where do they spray this high level of capex that's necessitated by the high level of savings? And they've sprayed it, as we know, at infrastructure, you know, building out the world's largest high speed uh, train network at, at a huge amount of airports. We've seen it sprayed at commercial property. Um, we've seen it sprayed at gleaming office blocks. We've seen it sprayed overseas because the Belt and Road Initiative is part of this story. I mean, it's not just that they were funding port facilities in Sri Lanka. It was Chinese people and Chinese firms with Chinese resources doing the CapEx. But most famously, they pointed the fire hose at the residential property. And that became a huge um, you know, uh, bubble. Now, what we've seen increasingly over the last 15 years is that a humongous flow of CapEx uh, leading to diminishing economic and financial returns. Uh, in terms of the economics, um, the, the GDP that each dollar of CapEx generates uh, used to be about 50 cents. Now it's down is, that to because of, is that because of the debt, you think? I, I think it's just diminishing returns. I mean, the first high-speed rail that you might build between Beijing and Shanghai is going to create tremendous benefits because you've got two major population centers. By the times you're doing them between second and third-rate cities, um, just simply the payoff becomes a lot less. And uh, so that's a fundamental economic problem. And you can also see it um, in terms of financial returns. If you look at the return on assets in the listed sector, that's collapsed over, collapsed over the last two and three decades. So it's, it's become a real financial problem. And this gets to the heart of why Chinese equities have given you appalling returns uh, over the last 25 years, even though China on one level has been a huge GDP success story. Because this poor allocation of capital has meant that ROAs have been deteriorating and EPS growth has been virtually non-existent. So it's created problems for the real economy. It's created problems for uh, investors. Now, the issue now where we stand today is policymakers can, if they want, generate symptomatic relief. They could provide fiscal stimulus, and that, I guess, would produce a short-term bounce in markets. But ultimately, the fundamental problem they face um, of excess saving is if they don't resolve that, then they're going to continue to have to deploy wasteful, inefficient, counterproductive capex. And the worst thing that that capex is now doing by creating more and more capacity uh, in an economy that's not growing sufficiently fast is you're robbing uh, producers of pricing power. And what we're now seeing uh, is CPI below year ago levels and I think most importantly, GDP prices, so economy-wide prices below year-ago levels. Now, that may not have been a problem three decades ago when China was a relatively lightly levered economy. China is now a heavily levered economy, particularly relative to its per-person GDP. And the lion's share of that leverage sits in the corporate sector. Now, as you know, debt and deflation is a suboptimal macro combination. So if they continue to do capex that robs producers, highly levered producers, their pricing power, you're heading into a major crisis. So um, they've got a, a real problem with the structural economy, and I haven't even mentioned the geopolitics. So uh, I I think that you know I can't rule out short-lived rallies. Um, you know we saw in Japan as it sort of sunk into the morass, there were several tradable rallies in Japanese equities that were triggered by large fiscal stimulus programs. But as I used to say, this is like putting 20,000 volts through a corpse. Once you turn down the voltage, it's still a corpse. Um, and so you could see policymakers deliver some voltage to the Chinese economy. But if the household sector continues to over-save and underspend, it's going to become increasingly comatose. Fascinating. We'll see how it plays out and what that does for world growth. Jerry, look, as ever, amazing conversation. Um, just, it, it's really interesting times, right? It you know, is. Whether we're in a stru structural, secular shift, I'm the other side of that equation. This whole economy right now is 
complex. It's just, it's fascinating. So it keeps us on our toes. We thought we'd seen I, it all. I know right? you're on the other side and you've been very polite and tolerant by not taking a few swings at me. Um, but well, that's, that's not what the point. You know, I, get you here to, I get you here to hear your view. I don't get you here to, to force my view. No, we no, can no. We do no. that over a beer sometime. Yeah, no, no, correct. And so, by the way, I am starting to travel again, so we should uh, compare diary dates. I'll be in the US in October. I'll be in Hong yeah, Kong. I think I, I think I will as well. I think I'll be, I'll be in the US in October. Let me know. Oh. Ping me an email. Yeah, will do. Always great All to right, catch you up, mate. Okay. Fantastic. I was right. Jerry, super interesting. Lots of complexity of thought. I think for a lot of people listening to this, you have to see how all of us who've been around for a long time in financial markets have to always have in our heads all the opposing arguments. That's why I got Gerard on because it's an opposing argument from somebody I really respect to mine. And Gerard's doing it himself with his own views about where we are in the cycle. He's like, it could be this, it could be this. I think it's that I'm shifting my probabilities. That's the magic here is anybody who's dogmatic, who says they know for sure is not right. What you always have to do is assess everything and ask, can I be rolled? Where would I be rolled? How would I be rolled? Anyway, fantastic macro masterclass. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 